This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Hi, welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And I'm Nick Ashburn. And we are here live every Thursday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time at our replay throughout the week. So we love having our discussions on Dollars and Change. Um, And today we have a great show in store. And actually, we're shaking things up a little bit. We're going to end our session with a, a half hour of discussion, open discussion. So if you want to call in, if you've had questions about our guests or just questions that you think we might be able to answer, you should give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. The guests we have today uh, bring a range of topics, um, everything from the philosophical to the practical. So we kind of like that. And, and with my background as an academic philosopher, I'm going to geek out on the first section. So we'll see about that. So we're going to start with the author of Shaping the Future of Work, a Handbook for Action and a New Social Contract. And this is Professor Tom Kohan from the MIT Sloan School of Management. We'll then have the executive director of the Greenlight Fund uh, from the Philadelphia chapter, and that's Omar Woodard. Greenlight has several chapters throughout the country and continues to expand, so we'll talk a little bit about that that replication strategy. And then at 9 a.m., we will join by economic mobility and healthcare expert from CNN Money, Tammy Luby. And then we'll have our open segment. Then we'll have our open segment. So we get to talk about anything we want to. That's right. And hopefully, like you said, our guests or our listeners are you know prepping their questions. It's a new format that I think we're going to try to implement um, consistently, consistently um, in, in a way that, you know, if you, you want access to, I guess, us, I was going to say <laughs> some of Wharton's best minds. I don't know if that's us, but, uh, you know, some of Wharton's best minds, uh, you can give us a call. We'll use a big grouping of some, right? That's right. That's right. So you can always call during the segments and, and hear from our guests, but you can also now really get a chance to get to know us and, and ask your questions if you're a social entrepreneur, if you're a nonprofit, if you are looking at, you know, different ways to use your money in purchasing power or in integrate a social impact part of your business, like a huge range of opportunities to talk to us. And, and, you know, just give us a call. And this allows us to be a little topical, to hit on some things going on in the news. And Absolutely. See the, the latest and the There's always a greatest. lot going on in the news. There's always a lot going on in the, the news. Yeah. So we'll keep it light. Absolutely. So anyhow, we're welcoming Tom Kohan, who's the professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management and the author of Shaping the Future Work, A Handbook for Action and a New Social Contract. Tom, welcome to the show. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me, Cheryl and Nick. It's a pleasure to be part of the program. We're delighted to. And I, I have to say, I think you are going to be our first guest to talk about, to talk explicitly about social contract. I think we've had some guests who've done so implicitly, but you're, you're going to lead us into um, a bit of philosophy and social contact theory. So, well, that's great. Yeah, I love it. I did my dissertation on Hume, so this is a, oh, an area near and dear an to me. <laughs> you, can, uh, you can tell us all about it. Ah, but you're the author. So, so Tom, for our audience, tell us what a social contract is. Well, a social contract does come out of uh, political philosophers' work like Hume and, and particularly Jean-Jacques uh, Rousseau and others. And it basically is uh, in the political science uh, arena the contract or the expectations that that people have for the state, that is for the government, 
and that uh, what government is supposed to do to meet the needs of individuals uh, in their society. I uh, adapt it a bit and use it as a metaphor for a social contract at work. And by that, I simply mean uh, what are the expectations and obligations that uh, workers, uh, employers, communities, society have for uh, what happens at work and uh, what uh, the different groups get out of work. Yeah, and I think part of the the impetus for some of this discussion is that in the social contract theory, you're you're basically giving up some of your freedoms. You're agreeing to not just go wild and do whatever it is that you want to do in exchange for expectations of, of response from others. And I think that um, clearly it works in the government, um, but at work it, it's a different thing entirely, well, it's not a different thing entirely, but it plays a different role at work, I think, because I don't know that people think about the social contract aspect quite as much? Probably not as much, but I emphasize the mutuality of the employment relationship, and we've lost sight of that. We've lost sight of the fact that uh, it's supposed to be a voluntary relationship, and it's a voluntary relationship in which people can influence the terms and conditions under which they work and are held accountable for performing uh, effectively and contributing to the uh, success of the enterprise. So it's the mutual responsibilities and obligations of the people who work and the people who uh, control um, uh, the means of, of, of employment and the, the production process. So it's that mutuality that I think we've lost in our society. It, 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 people don't feel they have a voice at work anymore because they often don't have a voice at work. Right. And so part of it is, you know, it's not just a simple exchange of labor for salary, right, and, and payment. There's a sense, in your view, that there's there's more to it than that, or at least there should be. So talk a little bit about what that, what, why you think it doesn't apply in, in many workplaces now. Well, let's look at who is at work today. It's a very diverse workforce that we have. People, of course, still need to make a good livelihood, and there's no substitute for concerns about the economics of the employment relationship. Wages have stagnated. Income inequality has grown way out of uh, uh, anything that is sustainable or acceptable. And, and so those are problems that have to be addressed as uh, fundamental issues at work. But beyond that, people want meaningful work. They want to have a voice. They want to make sure that they're working for an organization that they can relate to and, and, and support the mission of the organization. They want to provide good customer service, whether it's uh, to students as teachers or patients uh, in health care or to uh, people who are buying uh, the goods um, that uh, are being produced. And so it, today's workforce has a variety of different, different interests and expectations for what they will get out of work. And by the way, they want to have a good time. They want to, it's a social experience at work. They want to get along with their coworkers and with their supervisors, and they don't want to have an adversarial relationship uh, 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 if if they can at all avoid it. So, Tom, how did we get here? <laughs> um, I guess what I mean by that is um, it sounds to me that there is a pain point here that you are, you know, trying to address or, or trying to highlight. What what are we what are we really talking about? What what do you observe um, happening in the workplace that you know may not be where you think we should be going? Well, I think we have to go back and look at, at history. We had what I call a, a, a social contract, and others have as well. I'm not the only one. 
Um, after World War II in the 1940s through the 1970s, wages and productivity and profitability moved up in tandem. And as uh, companies became more profitable, they tended to uh, uh, share those profits uh, with the workforce. And they did so not necessarily just because they thought it was a good thing to do. Uh, there were strong unions, and collective bargaining was the engine by which uh, uh, wage increases spread throughout uh, the economy to unionize workers and then by the threat of unionization to the non-union workforce. That ended about 1980. The economy changed, the politics uh, changed, the power relationships at the workplace changed, management became much more aggressive, and the fi- what now, this terrible term called financialization took over the corporation. That is, corporate executives were under much more pressure to respond and and put a top priority on shareholder value rather than on uh, viewing the corporation as composed of multiple stakeholders that needed uh, to be uh, accommodated. And so since then, we've seen this uh, gap between wages and productivity grow and grow and grow. Um, and and that's uh, uh, another way of talking about the inequality in our economy. And uh, employees, uh, as unions have declined over this time period, have lost the opportunity to really have the power to influence what's going on um, in their employment relationship. So then who's going to have the power to, to make this shift? To get well, it towards more uh, level and equal. Take, uh, new activism on the part of the workforce. We're doing uh, a study right now of new forms of worker voice that are emerging around the country um, through petitions like uh, organizations called coworker.org, um, where they've uh, influenced uh, scheduling at Starbucks by saying, uh, you know, we've collected data from the employees themselves, and they they want you to use all this great software. Uh, to improve scheduling so that it's more predictable. Uh, you have organizations even at places like Walmart, you know, your classic low-road, uh, hard-nosed employer that keeps wages uh, at a minimum and so on. Um, something called Our Walmart is, you, is an organization of uh, employees that is supported with the use of AI tools, artificial intelligence tools, to... Uh, understand their rights at work and to build community and to get responses uh, uh, from uh, uh, experts when uh, they're confronted with workplace issues. And so, so this is something implemented by Walmart? generation of worker organization. I'm sorry? This AI programming uh, information stuff is implemented by Walmart rather than external? Oh, no, external? not by Walmart. Ah, Walmart okay. Nothing to do with it. They fight it just like they fight unions okay, all the time. that makes sense. This is an independent, <laughs> independent organization. So, Tom, I want to go back to that pain point a little bit because I think it, it might be illustrative as we move forward in the conversation to think about, like, well, what do we do? Um, you know, you talked about the financialization of the corporation um, in the in around 1980. Um, and, and this might be a little bit of a false dichotomy. But, um, you know, one of the, the, I think, arguments for that is how do we remain competitive? Um, but I also sort of think it's is juxtaposed against really just extracting value and, you know, shareholding, share, maximizing shareholder value versus, you know, remaining competitive in a global workforce. Um, and I think we might be able to trace that back to Uncle Milty um, and, and you know, maybe even some Wharton professors. Uh, but I, I wanted to get better understand, you know, what, what were some of the results of financialization? Um, was it just that we start viewing the corporation in terms of dollars and cents or dollars and change? Um, you know, numbers. Dollars and no change, yes. 
you know, numbers instead of people, you know, going back to the social contract, you know, we, we see them as economic utils. Uh, what, what really was the mind shift there? Well, it, it, it's not just a mind shift. It's a power shift. And what happened was, uh, yes, uh, and there's enough business schools uh, to share the blame uh, or the credit, if you want, uh, for this. Uh, Chicago, of course, had a you know, free, free market and Milton Friedman's uh, famous 1970 essay that uh, the only uh, goal of corporations should be to maximize shareholder or maximize profits. And then you had uh, uh, the development of... Uh, uh, being able to price stock options uh, that came from Chicago and from MIT, and you had uh, um, Jensen and Meckling's uh, uh, work on uh, how to tie CEO compensation more tightly with stock options to uh, uh, share prices. And that uh, shift, those intellectual tools and those practical tools, allowed corporations to... Uh, uh, more tightly control CEO behavior and to threaten them at the same time with the leverage buyouts that were happening uh, in the 1980s because of the development of new debt instruments uh, right. like junk bonds and so on. And so, so you had this, this confluence of a shift in politics with Ronald Reagan, much more aggressiveness uh, by business, but that reflected uh, the, the pressure that... Uh, Wall Street and the, these financial um, uh, wizards were uh, developing to tightly control CEOs. And so CEO compensation, as we all know, grew uh, enormously relative to everyone else because uh, they were tightly controlled by uh, share prices, and that created a, a, a kind of a self-fulfilling cycle of, of uh, very narrowly centered um, uh, behavior on the part of uh, corporate executives. And you're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Um, we are talking to Tom Cohen, who is professor at MIT Sloan School of Management and the author of Shaping the Future of Work, A Handbook for Action, and a New Social Contract. If you want to get in in the discussion, you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Tom... Um, so you're thinking about these multiple factors. There's the, the, the change in politics. There's a, a, a kind of theoretical aspect with it. But then there are also these tools you're talking about that are helping right. to push the monetization. Are we going to have tools that will help us push the other way and to give a more, a more fair social contract and empower workers? I mean, you're talking about some of these external things yeah. that aren't driven within the company. Are those, are those the way to go? Well, that's that's a great, great question, Cheryl, and it, and it uh, hits home for those of us who teach in schools of business, schools of management. You know, we've allowed the MBA curriculum to be dominated by finance, and we've allowed uh, this notion that corporations exist only to maximize shareholder value become to become the culture right. at Wharton, at, at Sloan, at MIT, at, at Harvard, at Chicago, at all of the the, the big schools and, and many others. That has to change. We have to start teaching, and, we, and many of us already are doing it, and uh, your colleagues at Wharton are doing it as well. Teaching, how do we build corporations that are both good for share owners and for employees? We know something about that, and so the tools are becoming much, much more available and, uh, uh, and understood. We just have to start teaching. How do we build high-road companies, companies that 
drive productivity, that engage their employees, that build high-performance work systems, as we call it, and many of our students have, have, uh, have studied. How do we make sure that we are investing in the workforce so that they are able to adjust to changes in technology and changes in markets as uh, they come along and, and that we're getting the full return on that investment by holding on to those employees? Those are the kinds of ways in which we can compete effectively and produce good and sustain uh, good jobs as compared to the, you know, the other extreme of just treating labor as a, uh, as a cost minimizing it at, at all um, uh, in, in all its dimensions, keeping unions out by uh, uh, by uh, either violating labor law or taking full advantage of the weaknesses of labor law, and uh, holding uh, uh, employees down rather than uh, really developing their skills. So the tools are becoming available, and we can teach those, and we do in some of our courses, but they have to become the norm in business schools, not the exception. Oh, Nick and I are both pausing for questions. So the, we've got the entering class coming in. You know, we're, we're in fact, going right. to have a session where we're going to talk to the incoming MBAs about social impact and, and our approach. And I think about them not just coming in, but then as they graduate. When students graduate, we know that they talk – and they're interested in, in a uh, purposeful workplace. They're interested in the companies that are the kind that you talk about. What advice do you give to somebody who's graduating and, and looking for a job? What should they What should they do? They should be asking uh, the recruiters what kinds of opportunities do they provide? How flexible are their work systems? What's the diversity of the organization look like? And give me some numbers and give me some uh, examples and some uh, evidence that people can have a career here who have uh, different backgrounds and different interests. What are the training and development uh, paths that are open to us? How are you treating the lowest level employees in your organization? What is the wa- the starting wage? Uh, is it a living wage? How are you treating the contractors, those independents or uh, dependent contractors that uh, Companies don't like to treat as employees. Uh, are you treating them with respect? Because I'm going to have to manage them in, in some way. Asking those questions and knowing the right questions to ask and making that the norm so that everybody in the, in the, uh, the class is asking those questions so that recruiters begin mm-hmm. to get the message and they send that message back. We're not going to get the talent we want unless, unless we, we have organizations that address these issues. And, by the way, uh, allow these people to compete and to 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 manage in a way that uh, achieves these highly competitive results for the organization and uh, meaningful work for the people they're responsible for. So, Tom, I want to uh, get your opinion on how uh, some other some of our other listeners might be able to uh, take some of this advice back to either their employers or how they they do this at home. And, and I want to give a concrete example. Uh, I talk a lot about on the show. My my mom works in manufacturing uh, back in Kansas, and um, I know that she it, her plant is one of the only unionized plants um, in in the company. And, um, you know, we talk about management in, in her factory. And my assumption, just knowing what I know, is that because they, I think a year or two ago, they got sort of a new management team. And I sort of think it was probably a management rotation, you know, corporations mm. that, mm-hmm. you know, you bounce from position to position, you might go from plant to plant or different role. Um, and so I sort of think maybe she just experienced one of those transitions. Um, 
And so, you know, I, I think that the overall uh, what, what I'm understanding from her is that that this new transition has been uh, been tough uh, in, in terms of how things are operating, but also how employees are treated. And, um, you know, I, I think that might resonate with a broader swath of our listeners. And, I, you know, I'm curious, like for for folks that are, you know, you were talking about, you know, MBAs being able to talk about, well, how are the lowest level folks paid or treated? I mean, you know, my mom's not high up on the totem pole at, at her company. So, you know, what are what can folks do to affect change in, you know, having better working conditions and things like that? That's a great, great question, Nick, and a great example. And your mother is uh, fortunate to have a, a, a union uh, that can give her a voice and that can protect her when she raises her voice uh, on issues, whether it's unfair treatment of her or her colleagues or people she sees around her, uh, or whether it's uh, sources of uh, improvement in operations that are going under uh, uh, under-recognized because the bosses, the new bosses, don't uh, listen to the employees. I think employees just have to start to 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 raise their voices, to use the tools at their disposal, uh, to use their unions to drive improvements in performance, and then say, "Hey, we have contributed. Now we want our fair share in uh, uh, in return." We recognize it's a competitive world. We are not asking to. Uh, to overextend our compensation. Maybe we did a little of that too much in the 60s and and, and 70s, but we're asking for a fair share, and we want uh, some form of profit sharing or some form of gain sharing or or employee stock ownership or some recognition that we are contributing so that that we can uh, be proud of, of the place that we work. And when a new executive, a new manager comes in, it's up to the to the workforce and the union to say, you know, we're, this is what we expect. We expect something from you as much as you expect it from us. And so uh, it's part of, uh, of understanding the norms and the culture of the organization and how we compete. So I want to see uh, workers raise their voices. And in Kansas, I think it's, it's uh, right in the heartland where so many people feel that they have not been listened to in our society. It's time for them to channel uh, their energies and their voices into these uh, constructive uh, uh, ways of expressing their concerns and uh, and expecting people to respond. Tom, so coming back, you know, again, Kansas, the heartland, people feeling maybe disenfranchised. Um, and, and coming back to this management rotation concept, you know, I, again, I don't know if this is true where my mom is or not, but I can imagine a scenario where, you know, management went to, you know, a, a different school and they were sort of trucked in for, you know, a couple of years into, you know, this town in Kansas and, and they're not from there. Increase the performance. Yeah. I mean, I know yeah. I know specifically compensation is tied to volumes mm-hmm, produced, mm-hmm. not, you know, any much else um, in, in this particular case. But. I have a hypothesis that also we are, you know, the humanity is being reduced in in these types of situations because people aren't from these communities. You know, the executives yes. are not from the oh, communities where yeah. their workforce are. I, I grew up uh, in a small uh, rural and, and uh, small towns in Wisconsin. And I remember watching as a, a young person in college uh, the manufacturing uh, Plants get bought out by uh, multinationals and people coming in who weren't uh, local residents. My father-in-law was one of the last surviving uh, 
executives of a nice small electronics plant uh, in in Wisconsin, uh, and the stresses that put on the community, the stresses it put on him, and and uh, as I watched him, uh, uh, you know, really deteriorate and finally retire early because he was the last one standing. That's a terrible situation, and I think uh, we, what I urge our students, and we in fact uh, uh, have a program to do this, and I'd like to see every business school do this, get out and talk to real workers. Have every MBA student as part of some class somewhere along the line go out and just get the story of, of a worker, not uh, another MBA or a peer, but somebody who's who's got a different occupation. It can be anyone you want. Just talk to them. Ask them, what, what's their life like? What's their experience? How is it going? What really motivates them? What are they really most satisfied with and what frustrates them, if anything, uh, in their work experience? When we do that, when our MBAs do that, they, they come back with their eyes open. I was just going to say, it must be shocking, right? Yeah, they love it. And, and the, then the conversations among them as we debrief and you know, discuss what, what some of the messages have been uh, are really powerful. And we've uh, encouraged them to audio tape uh, the conversations and some of those tapes uh, we, we're, we're trying to figure out what to do with them and maybe turn them into a podcast or two. But that exercise is 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 as useful and as great a learning ex- experience as anything we've ever done uh, in our classes because it just brings home that the people out there think differently about work than um, most MBA students uh, do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that that we were kind of coming to the end of the the segment, one of the things that is sort of uh, in the forefront of many discussions is around automation, right? That a lot of the jobs that were maybe kind of mundane but reliable are now being taken over uh, and being automated. So the the need for the the human uh, resource and the capital seems to be less. How do we uh, turn this trend from something that seems to scare people, you know, sort of like, oh, my God, if we have automatic driving cars and trucks, then all those trucks will be out of a job. So how do we turn it from this nightmare scenario to something where it, it can empower workers and help them? I'll send you a, an op-ed that will be out on around Labor Day on this that you can post on your, your website. Great. We'll definitely tweet uh, it. That basically says... Uh, if we are passive, then everything you just said will come to, 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 to be true. But there's no uh, law of physics or iron law of technology that says it has to be designed just to get rid of jobs. Of course, we're going to lose some jobs, but we're going to create some new ones as well with technology. And the way in which the evidence, and including work done by one of your professors many years ago, John Paul McDuffie, yeah demonstrated in automobile manufacturing that Toyota got it right. They introduced new technology and automation and robotics into their plants with training, with involving the employees in how to improve the technology, how to make it work. They have a phrase that's called, it's workers who give wisdom to these machines. And they got double the productivity that General Motors got in its most automated plants. And part of that, Tom, what is like the idea that we often wait, the technological innovation happens, and then we wait for the education and training to catch up. You're saying this goes in tandem. Absolutely. We need to do them in tandem. And if we do that, that means we have to make sure the workforce has some knowledge and training going into it so that they can add some value. 
and that means that they're better prepared and more accepting of the new technologies and that they they help then create new uses for it and new applications and new ways of improving um, the performance of the the technology and that's the way in which we will then drive innovations create higher productivity better jobs and have the best shot at at uh, creating more jobs than we uh, eliminate we're going to have both we're going to eliminate jobs we're going to create jobs we, if we manage this effectively, we will be able to get the best of both worlds, and I think we'll we'll come out okay. I'm not a I'm not a doomsdayer on technology. <laughs> notion that all jobs. I was are having going, a, going a Terminator or, dreams. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's crazy. So, uh, so but, Tom, is but, this a policy there's, thing? There's, there's enough reality to it today that if we don't get more aggressive and we don't become more proactive then we are going to have more problems. We're going to have bigger gaps between the winners and the losers on technology than we had on trade. And we can't afford that as a democracy, as a society, or as an economy. So is this, can we lead with policy? Is this led by the private sector? Who, who's stepping, who should be stepping in to think about how we Both. do this in tandem? Both. It has to be led by the private sector because that's where the jobs are created and that's where the technology is developed and that's where the uh, it's it's implemented, but in the end, we need uh, government. You know, we're, government policy is uh, government supporting a whole new generation of manufacturing uh, innovation in 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 industry. Those dollars should be uh, used, and those who are getting those uh, grants to develop the next generation manufacturing should be held accountable for using technology in the way we just described. Mm. So government can play a role, and ultimately some people will get displaced and and will not have the skills to adapt to whatever is coming along. And we have to make sure that we uh, compensate the, the people who are most uh, harshly affected by technology better than we compensated those who were affected by trade or God knows we're going to have um, deeper problems that lie ahead. So, so government has a role to play uh, in both facilitating uh, better use of technology and then um, making sure that we have uh, programs to, to help those that are displaced. And, Tom, that's a great note on which to, to end our segment. We'll be looking forward to uh, reading the uh, op-ed piece that you've got. We've been talking with Tom Colhan, who's the professor at MIT Sloan Management uh, School of Management and the author of Shaping the Future of Work, A Handbook for Action and a New Social Contract. It sounds like it's absolutely worth reading for some you know, people who are thinking about their job in the future and, and how they can help shape a future role for themselves in the world. Um, when we come back next after our short break, we'll be talking to Omar Woodard of the uh, Greenlight Fund here in Philadelphia. And you're listening to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 